Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, October the 17th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan, and I'm delighted to say I'm joined in studio today by our deputy political editor, Fia Kelly, and also by our, how should we describe you, Fintan O'Toole, columnist, assistant editor. Um, uh, international man of mystery. International man of mystery. Um, arch arch Brexiteer or, or arch Brexitologist, I suppose I, I I should say we are going to be talking about Brexit. Obviously, this summit is kicking off later today, and doesn't seem to be holding out much hope for anything of great consequence to happen today. Anyway, no, I think the best that the Irish government is hoping for that is that we were anticipating that this summit would see the EU twenty seven make a call on whether it needs to be a further summit in November to ratify a withdrawal agreement. There's a view that. I think Donald Tusk was pessimistic about that yesterday. I think the Irish government's best case scenario is that we don't call for a summit in November, but we don't not call for a summit either. So we just allow the talks continue on for a week or two and then we still have the provision for a further summit in November. But the mood music is uh, pretty bad around the place. Um, The kind of flurry to Brussels on Sunday by Dominic Raab, I think, was misread by most people in the British press. I was speaking to somebody in government buildings earlier this week who said that they were of the view that once they saw that happening, they knew it was bad news, that the phone call between Rab and Barnier went particularly bad on Sunday, that uh, it was almost like they had to go to meet each other face-to-face to really have it out on Sunday afternoon to basically say, you know, these are our fundamental issues, you're not going to budge us on it. And it comes back to, as always, the backstop and whether it should be time-limited enough, whether there should be a separate backstop to the backstop. It's all very technical at the moment. The British side keeps pressing forward this idea of a time-limited backstop in principle, if not in detail, I think earlier on, much earlier on the process, a couple of weeks, months ago, they proposed that the backstop should only apply to the end of the transition phase up to the end of 2020. That was obviously rejected. What they keep doing now is coming back with the principle of a time limit and the EU keeps saying no. And they, Well, the counter-argument, and I heard Simon Coveney making it earlier today and the argument from the EU is it's not a backstop if there's a No, it's not a backstop if it's time limit. And the view is like, you know, okay, it's a time limit, but what if a future British government comes in, it's led by a different prime minister or Conservative parties are very different hue. If it's led by a leading Brexiteer, they may want to go back and revisit all this stuff, and therefore the backstop is null and void. Um, then you have the separate issue of the backstop to the backstop, which is the the one that's the Irish government and it will be if there is to be a withdrawal agreement. Uh, legally binding within the withdrawal agreement is the backstop as it's specific, specific to Northern Ireland, as we all know, aligned to the single market in terms of regulations within the customs uh, union. The separate one is that there'd be an all-UK backstop. Now, the interplay between the two is not quite clear about how one gets triggered and if one doesn't. But the fear, according to people in Dublin on the EU side, is that the British government was offered some class of a declaration on this all British customs union as as, a, as an alternative uh, in the political declaration or else as a protocol to withdraw. So the backstop to the backstop, the mind boggles yeah. really with some of this, but the backstop to the backstop is essentially is that the UK remains effectively within the customs union yes. until 
an agreement, agreement. Uh, an agreement is, is reached which uh, permits uh, continuing open border in Ireland. Yes, and that would allow Theresa May to say, OK, I have this backstop specific to Northern Ireland, but I'm not going to need it because I have this other one here, which is about the UK and it preserves the union, etc., etc. The fear, according to people in Dublin, is that the EU is afraid that the British government are now using this all UK customs union as a mechanism to get onto the future relationship now. Because so, all these negotiations, people need to remember, are just purely about embarking on the withdrawal process. The withdrawal uh, process. Rather than about what the outcome And with the some kind of looser language about how both sides envisage the future relationship to be. So there is a fear that Theresa May is saying, look, OK, you're offering me something in the political declaration or a protocol to do a withdrawal treaty. That's not good enough for me because the language isn't strong enough. I can't sell that politically at home if I'm to get over this hump of the Northern Ireland specific backstop. And the EU have just concerns saying, look, we have fear that the British government are going to use this to their advantage, that they have concerns about state aid rules. All those type of consequences are falling into this now. And we're uh, kind of, f- in a way, coming back to the uh, the famous Instagram picture of um, her having her cake and eating exactly. it and there being no cherries on the cake and cherry picking exactly. and all, so, that, all that language. Like, there's various shades of optimism and pessimism. Um, a couple of people are pessimistic. You know, one person said to me, you know, she is a committed unionist. People seem to... Uh, underestimate that at times. She is committed to the union and that isn't appreciated in the UK and it's not appreciated in Europe or even Ireland. Um, But they believe that the shape of a deal is still there to be done if maybe there's a bit of budget from the EU side on something more concrete on the all-UK backstop, which, let's face it, Dublin would be exceedingly comfortable with that. It's it's the the EU 27. It's what we want. So I think... They believe that there is the shape of a deal there to be done if there's a bit of inching on both sides. How how are your varying levels of optimism and pessimism at the moment, Fenton? The sort of uh, hourly uh, shifts, you know. Um, I think the case for pessimism is much stronger, you know, than, than it has been before. You know, at, at some level, you always believe that, you know, these negotiations end up in some kind of a fudge and everything kind of carries on and, you know, it'll all be kind of, it'll all be all right. I think... What has not changed is the fundamental problem, which is the problem of political authority in the United Kingdom. When they did Brexit, they screwed up their entire system of political authority. Right? This is a, an entire policy which is based on the sovereignty of Parliament. That's what it's about <laughs> historically. You know, that's British ide- English identity is really tied up with that. And they screwed that up entirely. And it's not just that Theresa May is a kind of weak leader, a vacillating leader, although I think she is, but that's not really the point. The point is that their whole system of authority is, is fundamentally discombobulated. And so they're in a weird situation, really, which is, which is where... We can talk about the possible compromises, but but it's really hard to see who's going to sell the compromise. The strategy at the moment, Theresa May's strategy, insofar as there is one at the moment, seems to be to play for time, play for time, play for time, and then push it right up against the edge. Right. Mm-hmm. So we, we're now probably talking about going into December. And that may well mean that the parliamentary debate isn't until January. And then it's it's sort of shoot me now with an no deal in my arms. You know, it's, it's, you have this actual terrible compromise. But from every point of view, remain leave, it's going to be an awful fudge. And nobody's going to like it. And the calculation then is, well, you know, it's this or catastrophe. I mean, it's a bizarre situation where you're kind of saying, we'll, we'll get something that nobody wants, 
because the only alternative is something that's even more catastrophic. Cabinet discussed Brexit at length yesterday and one of the ministers said to me this evening that they believe, or well, at least someone believe that is her exact strategy. Bring it out, bring it out, bring it out until the last minute, then bounce the UK parliament is saying it's this or catastrophe. Yeah, and, and then what happens... That Ireland is being held... Yeah hostage by her yeah. to get her to that point. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 that seems to me to be absolutely what's happening. And, 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 and then, you know, the question then is, given her lack of political authority, this strategy could completely backfire, right? So if you look at the numbers and you look at the very different reasons people have for voting against it, 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 it seems the Labour Party is going to stay fairly solid. There will be a few who will, who will support May on this. But remember, the Labour Brexiteers are sort of extreme Brexiteers, right? So they don't want this. Food. There's a small bunch of them, but they, they, yeah. they could make a big difference. Uh, but they're, but they're, half a dozen of them. Yeah, but you have to remember they're on the far side of this, right? So they're, the, they're, they're not sort of moderate Brexiteers. You know, by, by virtue of who they are, they're kind of saying, we want out and we want out all the way. We don't want this fudge. The Tory Remainers don't want the fudge because they make the perfectly reasonable point that it's worse than the status quo. You know, so what? Why? You know, if, if, is this what it meant? You know, <laughs> why are we going to all of this trouble to remain a kind of satellite of the European Union indefinitely? Um, and of course, the Breeze Moggy and Johnsonian Remainers will will are uh, leavers. They have one good point, right? I mean, they're reckless and irresponsible and full of fantasy. But there's one truth at the heart of what they're saying, which is this is worse than the status quo. <laughs> you know, I, actually being locked in to a situation in which you are a rule taker indefinitely. And their question is reasonable. Like, when do we get out of this and how do we get out of it? Um, because you see, it's all based on fantasy. It's all based on, well, the European Union is ultimately going to offer us infinite cake. We just hold on long enough. And they themselves, of course, know that this is complete nonsense. It's not going to happen. I mean, you will not survive if the UK comes out of this with a better deal than membership. Well, in the scenario which you set out there, Fintan, there is no way that Theresa May can, even with the gun to her head, standing one leg off the cliff, get it through Westminster yeah. because uh, yeah. the, number, the numbers just aren't there. For well, well, at the moment, the numbers aren't there, right? So, so it's all then predicated on the fact that you'll create some kind of absolute panic. You know, it's, 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 it, it, it's, it's, uh, Boris Johnson's got into a lot of trouble for talking about the suicide vest and all that, you know, but it is a kind of suicide vest strategy. It's, it's really, you know, if you don't support me now, we're setting off the no deal. Now, just think about what might happen, right? So there's a strong chance that the Parliament will will um, not approve the deal. They have to have the meaningful vote on it. If this is in January, like so, so we were all thinking about this is going to be in November, so at least then there's a kind of some time to pick up the pieces. But this is it's now becoming an all or nothing strategy because if this is in January, what happens then? What happens then is supposedly Parliament has a month to come up with an alternative strategy. Nobody knows how Parliament is supposed to do this, what the mechanism for this is, and how would you negotiate as as as, as a union of twenty seven with a divided English par- British Parliament? I mean, it's 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 insane stuff, right? But in any case, you know, the, the time is just not there. You know, you're, 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 the, the, the clock is ticking. And there is no way of long fingering this, is there? This no. is a ticking time bomb which can't be readjusted. Mm. Certain things can be done about the, the next period. You know, that can be extended and there's been some mm. talk of that over, mm. the, of, of, over the last while. But Article 50 is Article 50. Yeah, and you have you to have the deal before, before mm. March 29th, but it has to be approved by the British Parliament, it has to be approved by the European, European Parliament. Parliament. And effectively every member state has to, you know, not, not technically but... Mm. You know, any member state could could throw uh, uh, a spoke in the wheel, you know. Mm-hmm. So 
it's a complicated process. And so the whole idea of driving this up to the point of saying, you know, um, it's, 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 it's this high wire act where there is no safety net left. Mm. So in that scenario, the chances of no deal, uh, you know, just kind of sliding into it, just that, that no, you know, parliament blocks it, they mm. try to get something else. The Europeans say, come on, give us a break here. We mm. can't even negotiate with you now. We, we don't know what you want. Because remember, if parliament blocks it, it will have blocked it for two opposite reasons. Sure. So it's not even that there's a kind of coherent parliamentary opposition saying, we don't want that, we want that. You, you have uh, people saying it's, it goes way too far in conceding to the European Union. And you'll have other people saying, well, it actually makes leaving the European Union completely pointless. So maybe we should think again about a second referendum. You have all that kind of stuff in the mix. And at the moment, I don't see who has the political authority on either side of the house. So you remember the weird thing here is usually at least you would have the opposition, right? So at least you could say, well, the government is completely falling apart. There's an opposition who can who can who can take power and who have a clearer strategy. But I mean, Corbyn still has still completely failed to articulate any kind of real strategy. It's all about we want all the benefits of, mm. you know, of the customs union and the single market. His, uh, key and, tests are just so impossible to meet, you know. Yeah. You know, he I think these five key tests that Labour have, you know, the Brexit deal must must meet these tests in order for us to consider voting for it. And also yeah. impossible. It's basically being a member of the European yeah. Union without being a member of the European exactly. Union. It's designed to be impossible. But you just wonder, can she chip away at twenty, thirty Labour moderates to help her out in if this is the strategy she is pursuing and it seems like on the surface that it, it is that. One of the difficulties with that, that Labour moderates actually by definition tend to be Labour, the strongest Labour remainers and who are going to be but you'd least be count, inclined you, to You would be counting reason. on like, well, there may be a kind of destructive bent amongst the hard Brexiteers. Look, when they say, oh, we want Canada and you rip up the backstop, that's impossible. What they're effectively saying is we want no deal, but they can't bring themselves to say we want no deal because you can't rip up the backs up and go back to the EU and go, hey, Presto, we want a super, super Canada. But you go, how can we negotiate with you? You just ripped up what we've negotiated already. So I think the, 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 the bet, the political bet would be that those remainers in the Labour Party in particular who are all part of this people's vote movement, when they look down the barrel of a no deal crash out gun, they would vote for what Theresa May is offering as the least worst option. I think that's the, the calculation they would be making. And you would have to say that it would be a brave Remainer who basically risked the UK crashing out without a deal or what she was offering, which is, like, let's not forget that no deal, no transition period. And if it is going to be a fudge at the end of the day, which kicks into the transition period, the battle is still to be fought over the next year or two. It's a big risk. Well, what do you think of that, Fintan? That would be kind of the Chukamunya wing of the current British Parliamentary Labour Party doing that. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it's an extraordinary thing to ask any Labour Party member to do, which is basically to save Theresa May's bacon and to, and to keep a Tory government in power. You know, when it comes down to it, remember, this is still tribal. You know, it's still... Yeah. Now, uh, uh, I mean, I, th- I think what Felix is saying is absolutely um, a possible scenario, and it's obviously the one that Theresa May is betting on. Mm. I just don't know. I was in London on Monday night, you know, t- talking about this, and I, I, I'm just, I'm not, you know, I'm not picking up any great sense that there's this group of Labour MPs who are, who are willing to do this. Because remember, what they would be doing is, you know, even if it was a kind of once and for all Brexit deal and saying, OK, well, this is not, it's not a great deal, but it's the only thing we have on offer. But what they would be actually voting for is just to sort of continue this agony for another three, four or five years sure. Sure. and to keep the Tories who are, have been proved to be completely incompetent in terms of doing a deal in office in order to do that. Because remember, with the fixed term parliaments, I mean, May, theoretically, would, would, would be in power for 
all the transition period as well. Of if they were kind of shown to be a joke already. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, like, know, she, but, like but, she did the last time, she goes, true down, I want yeah. an election. And the opposition, yeah. although in Ireland, the opposition says, we don't want an election. Most opposition well, go, well, let's go to the Jeremy country. Corbyn, like, it's, a two, it's a two-thirds majority yeah. needed yeah. now as common, so yeah. you can easily go it, over that. It, but like, it's, 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 it's just, it's, it, it just has the makings of one of those extraordinary historical situations whereby mm. you end up with something that nobody other than a hardcore of loopers really wants. You know? And what then were people saying in London? And I know you're, I mean, you're writing a book at the moment about Brexit as a, a cultural, political phenomenon and what it all means. Yeah. What do you hear from people in the UK? Is there a sense of looming apocalypse or is there a kind of a blinkered approach to this? Or oh, I, I, nervous are people? I, I, I'm getting a sense of deep, 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 despair and nervousness and, and not from not just from kind of you know people who would be passionately committed to remain or anything you know but, you know people who are relatively neutral of the thing or at least of you know civil servants or you know I think there's very very deep worry and and there's deep worry because of these political problems you know so so I mean obviously you have the bureaucracy you have the mandarins you have all that kind of stuff who are trying to stabilise things trying to get a deal trying to you know get something over the line to, to limit the damage but they're very. You see, what you have to remember from their point of view is that it, everything they've seemed to achieve over the course of the negotiations has gone backwards. Mm. You know, well, the Irish thing in particular, right? So, what you always have to remember here is that we're now negotiating the backstop that the British agreed to in December and agreed to again in March, right? So, it, it, it's not. Like in a negotiation where you go step by step, you know, and, and you say, well, at least we've got that building block there and we can build on top of that and build on top of that. That's what mandarins usually do. That's what they're used to, right? This is a bizarre situation in which because you've got this political vacuum, everything that's agreed to, you know, collapses very, very, very quickly. So the whole backstop business, you know, that was that was done in on on December the sixth. Michael Gove's quote in recent days was, you know, I was told in December that this was a largely meaningless um, wording to get us through. By, get by, us through who, December. by whom yeah. was he told? Well, he assumed by like you know Theresa May, and he goes, and then I realised it was going to be a central part of negotiations. You know, well, yeah. read the protocol of last December; it's yeah. quite clear. And you, if I remembered, David Davis, not two or three days. After that protocol was agreed out in the Andrew Marr show, saying this is this is. But is that not typical? It's just, it's just a word to get us over. Yeah. Yeah. Is that not yeah. a huge huge part of this problem that you have that and you have Boris Johnson saying it's a disgrace that the British government was being kicked around for two years while he was foreign secretary yeah, yeah. and not saying they were being kicked around. That well, you have from, to, the, from the European perspective and maybe from the Irish one as well, Fiuk. You can have no faith in no, and in, people, in the other side delivering a deal if you agree. Some, or, or, some or, very senior government heads the other day. They said they keep asking us to trust them. And we keep looking at them and say, why? Why should we? Like, you're trying to renege on what you've agreed already. And they, they keep, the British keep saying to the EU27, trust us, we'll sort this out in the long term. And the obvious answer is, why should we? Having said that, if, there is, if a point does come, as Finton describes it there, in late January, mm. and the clock really is ticking very loudly now, and there is a, there is a catastrophe impending, that's a catastrophe for Ireland as well. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Like, you know, and is there any chance that that might cause the government here to, to shift its position? Yeah, That's the big question. Do we relent at, their, at, the, at the last if we're faced with the catastrophe of a no deal Brexit? And I'm assuming that's in the British calculation as well, that the pressure will become so unbearable on Leo Varadkar and Simon Covey that they eventually agree to some sort of fudge on the backstop or allow the backstop to be kicked, or allow the border, excuse me, to be kicked into the future relationship. I think that's the, 
the, the, the probably the bet that the British government are making to a certain extent. But on the on the on the on the surface and on the face that everybody you speak to in Dublin's like, oh no no no, we are firm and the EU twenty seven are firmly behind us. But you, you you think there's always a but in their minds that they 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 have to be thinking of this. Like you know, is part of their strategy and their kind of war game of what's going to happen the next few weeks. That at some stage they will get the lean on by the bigger players in Europe. And what will they what, do with that scenario? What would you think of that, Fenton? What's the likelihood of that, or possibility um, anyway, of that happening? I think there are two factors that have to be then put into play. I mean, one is European politics. You know, remember that the um, the Europeans have talked themselves into the Irish position. I mean, I think they were very skillfully talked into it, but once they took it, you know, they've taken it very far. I mean, uh, and remember, this has to get through the European Parliament as mm -hmm. well. And the Parliament has been very, very interesting because it's been, I mean, even more, you know, militantly pro-Irish than, than Barnier has been, you know, for example, or Tusk has been. You know, um, if you listen to Guy Verhofstadt, you know, you'd, you'd swear he was the over anchor or, he, you know, is even trying to run for election in Ireland. You know, it's Ireland first, Ireland first, Ireland we don't first. don't have that many votes in the Spitzen candidate process over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's, it's so the logic of these things, absolutely what Fake is saying, that's usually the way it works. But also in history, people talk themselves into positions. They've taken a moral high ground in this. Remember, this is... The Irish thing is the one thing that kind of lifts this from the from the European perspective out of sort of you know sort of face, face off thing. stuff. You know, it lifts it onto a moral ground of saying we're actually concerned about this, and you're not. This is your country, and you don't even bloody well care about it. And we do. Now, once you've said that over and over and over again, I think it becomes quite difficult to sort of lean on Ireland and say, actually, we didn't mean any of that stuff. Mm. You know, <laughs> just mm. just do what you're told. I don't think. I don't think. I don't think it would be that. This and it's not quite. I don't think it'd be that clear cut. Like, like I don't think it'd be that. Like, you know, abandoning you would be a subtle shift. I think of you know, suddenly there may be some sort of time limit on the backstop or some or something like that. Not a specific one, but yeah. there, there'll be something that will drag us further than we wanted to go. Our, our our problem, though, you see, see if, if the Brits were more clever, if they'd negotiated more skillfully, absolutely you would get to a point where, where you could say, OK, look, here's the way the little hole is there mm. and that's the way we can all escape mm. through. What they've actually done is, first of all, because they've they've backslided on everything, as you were saying, mm. like, the, the, so you can't trust, you, you know, like the, uh, anybody trusting them is insane, mm. you know. They've come up with no concrete proposals of any kind in relation to their magical... Technological, technological solutions, solutions yeah. you know. Um, uh, but but secondly, they've also, remember, and you have to factor into this, I mean, if, 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 if you're at this point where you say, okay, Jesus, let's just trust them, let's let's give them a bit of slack. You've Michael Gove, I mean, openly out saying, look, we'll agree something and then we can just stop, we can always undo it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, w one of the major Brexiteers in cabinet, I mean, this isn't, you know, somebody writing a column in the te Telegraph like Johnson is now. This is like a, a member, a senior member of cabinet. And he said it more than once now, which is like, you know, stick with May. Let's just get a deal done. Who cares? No, that's the go faction position, isn't it? Just do yeah. whatever needs to be said to get us over yeah. the line. Just get us over the line of next March. And then so let's so they're more or less saying, don't there. believe our word, yeah. we say. Yeah. And of course, the wonderful, I mean, you know, the funniest historical irony is, of course, that the model they're using in their own heads is the Irish Free State. <laughs> I mean, you, could, you couldn't make this up, you know, historically. That, if you listen to people like Daniel Hannan and all, we're saying, but sure, look, look what the Irish Free State did. They were very smart. You know, they, they, they sort of agreed to all this stuff that we, you know, we signed up to with the Commonwealth and the, the treaty ports and everything else. And then, sure, just after a while, they just, they just stopped, mm. you know, and, and nobody cared about that. And we all got, just got bored and then it was all fine. You know, so the Irish Free State is, the, is their model for getting over Irish partition on the border, you know. But you see, the, the problem then is, like, 
you can't concede to that. Like it's 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 not even that you don't want to. It's just you can't concede to people who are more or less openly saying we're lying, mm. and sure we'll sure we'll say anything, you know, just just to get you to this point. And then, and then we'll come back to you in the second phase of negotiations and say, well, so you've already kind of let that go. And you have to remember, and this comes back to Felix's point earlier on, you know, which is that the ultimate aim here is the most cynical, well, it's one of the most cynical things that any democratic government has ever done, which is to exploit Northern Ireland's troubles mm. to get to a situation where you have cake and eat cake. You know. This is the strategy. The strategy is to say the weakness in the European position is Northern Ireland. Why? Because the Europeans have said, look, Northern Ireland's kind of special. Mm. We're a rule-bound organization. We have to keep our rules. However, this place has suffered a lot. It's, it's only a million and a half people. Let, let's kind of bend the rules here. Let's, let's say, okay, you can have cake and eat cake. You can, you can do both. You can be inside and outside the European Union. So it's all fine. And initially, the British government response was, oh, that's, you, you can't do that. That's terrible. And then, and then it goes, ah, you know, this is the weakness in their position. And they're almost explicitly now saying, you're doing it for Northern Ireland, so you can do it for the right, for, for us. Like what, what you know, what, so all your whole thing about you can't cherry pick and you can't have your cake and eat it. Sure, you didn't really mean that because you're doing it for those people in Northern Ireland. So why don't you do it for the for the rest of us? The, and like the, the, one of the things about the whole process is yes, the British are the British are using Northern Ireland now to get to what they want, whereas which is what they accused, part, they accused at us least of. Part yeah. of what the Irish government was doing was using mm-hmm. Northern Ireland to get what we want. Which was a, look. I'm not saying it was the entirety. Like there is obviously the concerns about Northern Ireland, the peace process are a huge, significant. But a part of that was to make the East-West relationship closer than the British may have wanted, and may have realised they were agreeing to when they did last December. And that was hence the shock horror in when they realised what they'd actually agreed to that the Irish had used Northern Ireland to tie East-West closer and to tie the UK closer to the European Union. So both the Irish. And the British government are using Northern Ireland to get what they want out of this process. Now, there's always a bit of bad faith on all sides. Listen, we're, in a moment, we're going to move from the absolutely apocalyptic to the faintly preposterous, the Irish presidential election. There's things in life you just can't control, like the weather, the traffic, or the fact that spilled coffee seems to love white shirts. But it's all good, because there's something you'll always be able to control, your company's finances. SAP Concur integrates all your business's expenses, travel and invoicing in one simple solution, giving you the visibility and control you need to drive your business forward. SAP Concur. It's how the best-run businesses make their expenses run better. Learn more at concur.co.uk slash control. Finton, is this the most ridiculous national election in the history of our state? And we have very short memories. The last presidential election was actually worse, you know, because <laughs> it was nastier. You know, I mean, this one, I suppose, if you want us to say ridiculous, yes. I mean, I mean apart from the fact, that, you know, well, apart from anything else, it's no contest. It's it's no contest. And you see, it, I, I think a lot of it was based on a complete misconception, which was that Michael D. Higgins was afraid of an election. And, you know, that, that uh, you know, he was, he'd been in the park for seven years and it'd be, he'd be kind of, you know, low-hanging fruit for somebody, you know, big swinging, Dragons come along and take him take him out, you know. And and the fact is, of course, Michael De Higgins has been campaigning for fifty years. You know, I mean, he's 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 probably not probably he must be this this I mean the single most experienced political campaigner still active in Irish politics. You know, he's 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 seen off. I mean, he's had his ups and downs and everything else, but you know, he's sure. he's been around a long time, you know, and he loves campaigning. He's true, you know. He's that's it's, it's not doing very much of it though. <laughs> no, no, but he doesn't have to, you know. But he, I mean, I, I mean, it's campaigning the in the sense of, of being strategic. I yeah, mean, yeah, he yeah. Knows of course, exactly of course. He's, play, he's, he's playing his cards absolutely yeah. correctly from his yeah. point of view. You, like from a political tactic and strategy point of view, you can't fault what he's doing. 
but the, I think the thing about this presidential election is that if there was a candidate who could credibly stand against him and run him close, this would be a much different election. I think Michael D. Higgins' poll this morning has won 66%. If there was a serious political figure in there, this would be a much tighter election. And I don't think that Michael D. Higgins, first of all, he wouldn't be able to get away with what he's got away with. Like, I think it was ridiculous the other evening that he didn't, chose not to take part in a presidential debate, but then had his campaign ring in and give clarifications to statements that were made in the debate. Like, we talked about having... It's a bit cheeky, all right. We talked about having, oh, of course it having is. cake and eating it. There's another example of it. I mean, I mean, of course but, it is, but, you know, he's, he's, he's in an unassailable position. And if but he shouldn't if be, because if... No, no, like, of course he shouldn't. Yeah. But, but that's, I mean, in a sense, that's not his fault, right? No, it's, I mean, you know, it's, not, it's not up to not. him to kind of pick a, like, even I thought this morning, a better he, candidate he, to run he, against him. I thought this morning, his outing in Morning Ireland, I thought was quite poor... And I just, when I listened to that, I was like, if there was somebody in this race, a serious person, Michael D. Higgins possibly could have been there for the beating, I think. Oh, I, I, any election that would yeah. have come down to two major figures, I think, and mm-hmm. offered a genuine kind of alternative would have been close. But but, but that's not what's happened. You know? And, and uh, to be fair to him, like, it's not his fault that no, it's the not. candidates are so... But should we, look, should we look at that, you know, when we get to the end of this and it does look, I mean, Pat Lee, he says in today's Irish Times that it's pretty much a dumb deal and I think, you know, I think we can safely say that it's a one-horse race. But once this is all over, is it worth looking at it and saying, if we are to have these electoral mm-hmm. contests and they throw up a one-sided race and, it, and indeed a not particularly enlightening uh, or even entertaining race, mm-hmm. um, should we have a look at the process and ask why the kind of serious people with political stature and experience, the kind of people with the constitutional expertise who we've had in the in the role in the past, mm-hmm. why they're not running and how you could how you could do this thing better? Yeah, uh, like. Um, I, I was, first of all, we have to remember that it's very unusual for a, a sitting president to be in an electoral race, you know, and mm. this is only the second time it's happened. And the previous time there was no race, I mean, Dave Lira just didn't campaign at all and nearly lost um, uh, by, by simply not campaigning. Yeah, you know, I am, I am, yeah, yeah, I am yeah. Dave Lira, I, you know, I am the nation, I don't campaign. Mm. So this is really the first time, in fact, that we've had any kind of a contest where you have a sitting president. And this is an unusual situation. So, so... We shouldn't draw too many conclusions mm. from this particular one. The last um, presidential election was very competitive. You know, I mean, it was the next know. one will be too because the next one will it, be it, too. it's a clear field. The next time, all the yeah. parties will stand so money. It'll be a different I mean, race. Yeah. Um, but I think the dynamic of this race, where the parties kind of said, "Look, he's unbeatable. He's done a good job. Let's leave yeah. him at it." And then we had people going through the council route who ordinarily wouldn't yeah. get anywhere near the race. Like, let's say, for example, that the next time you have a Fianna Fáil candidate in the race, a Fine Gael candidate in the race, a Sinn Féin candidate in the race, which you will, the council route is suddenly a lot tighter. Yeah. All those Fianna Fáil councillors who led everybody into the race, they won't, they'll be instructed from party HQ, although they, they kind of were this time and ignored it, but they'll have their own dog in the fight. They won't let the people they had in this time in, neither will Fine Gael, neither will Sinn Féin. So it'll be a different dynamic in 14 years, but I do think there is an argument for, I don't know how you can do it, but tightening up that council route like where anybody can turn up and give a presentation because there should be some sort of, you know, at least someone on the council should propose in second that Vincent O'Toole could come in and give us a presentation to the council this week on why he should be present rather than having everybody... I was going to ask him if he was going to stand next time at the end of this podcast, mm. but now, you know, there you go. He just ruined it on me now, yeah. Surprise, <laughs> surprise it, element has gone. It, it, um, it is the case. Like it, yeah. it, 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 this, this, this was a, a unique 
election. We're going to have to wait yeah. 14 years to see if this repeats itself. I, I, I would be reluctant, frankly, to, 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 to play around. I know, I mean, Cathy Sheridan in her paper this morning is writing about, you know, and I think it's a good idea that, that if there is a sitting president that you need to do something about it. You know, well, she said, Cathy course. says that I think it's a good point. Yeah. You could have an interregnum yeah. of three or four weeks when there is no president. There already Absolutely. is an interregnum of 12 hours and there are mm-hmm. systems in place to do Yeah, yeah, and there are times when the president of the country something, you know, so there's all that that's mm-hmm. in place. That's so, you know, I think she's absolutely right about that. However, that's not the normal situation that's going to arise. So I think we just have to say, look, you know, just stand back from this. Um, you either have a monarchy or you have an elected head of state. Mm. And if you're going to have an elected head of state, then you either have them kind of a carve up among politicians in the, you know, parliaments, which is what a lot of, a lot of Germany, democracies do. German you know? president is that. Uh, yeah. And so it's some, you know, worthy old politician and there's a, there's a carve up. Um, or you do direct democracy. And if you do direct democracy, it's, 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 Unless the parties have absolute control over that, which they used to have, and they don't, you know, the the weird thing is that the council route wasn't really used much. I think Dana was the first person. Dana was, and and actually, we owe Dana a certain kind of debt of gratitude, actually, for for democratizing it. You know, she she did, and I don't think there's anything shameful about about having a very open race, mm. because actually, what turns out is that the electorate. I mean, remember, gi- given a choice. The last three times, the electorate has chosen a public intellectual of major st- international standing. You know, um, you know, we've actually had very good quality presidents. So I, I, I would take that, but produced... I suppose what I wonder is this time out, and, and maybe a little bit in the, in, at the last election, but certainly this time out. In principle, the idea that people from different walks of life who have performed some sort of public service and and can show show all that to the people and put themselves before the people is good. But I have, you know, I don't want to be insulting to these people, but it's just not a very good choice on offer there. No, 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 no. Uh, that's that's absolutely true. But there is no way that you can frame a process on the basis of saying, please don't choose Egypt's. You know, you, you just can't do it. Constitution. Maybe we are a bit unfair to the council. Like, there was a level of discernment this time out. Not everybody who went through the council got in and there were some councils left who could have nominated and didn't. Yeah. So maybe, you know, maybe I'm being a bit unfair saying they should tighten up because when it came down to it, there were people who wanted in, didn't get in. It's not so much, my point is not so much about the kind of that, that any old any old whatever could get through. It's just that the process did not deliver an interesting contest between a range of different views but from people of, of, of a kind of stature and expertise. Because anybody, I'd say most people made the calculation that he was unbeatable. They made the same calculation to political parties that said, what's the point? He's not going to lose. Yeah, I mean, the, the weirdest thing, because we haven't mentioned it, I think it's, it's, it's really important. But one of the reasons why the contest is so poor is that the one political party which chose to nominate a candidate and, and could do so was Sinn Féin. And then that candidate goes around basically saying, I'm not the Sinn Féin candidate. No, no Sinn Féin on the, mm. on the posters, no Sinn Féin on the literature. Some vague kind of waffle about a united Ireland, but really no attempt at all, even to express a kind of party view. And I think that's a kind of weird... I mean, one of the fascinating things in our poll is that a majority of Sinn Féin voters are voted for Michael Higgins. Which is kind of funny and it's reflective of the, the, so, the, the debate within the Sinn Féin movement and the, the parliamentary party anyway. Earlier this year, they were kind of like, well, what, what's, what's he doing that's so bad? Like, you know, we, yeah. we kind of like Michael D. He speaks our language. He's relatively green. Like, you know, he's done a good job. We like him. And there were people who've been around that party for a long time. I was speaking earlier this year, like, you know, we didn't... We don't see the point in standing against him. And some of them are kind of blindsided by the decision of the leadership to stand against him for those reasons that Finton says, like, you know, our voters will probably vote for him. Like, the young people, we usually kind of tend to attract 
they'll vote for him. So what's the point? And I just think that it's it's probably a calculation on behalf of the new leadership that could go quite badly. I like think if they if they pull very poorly and they probably got hit with a double whammy that Michael D has the younger generation, then Sean Gatter come onto the field who nobble their voter on the border. So it's just kind of perfect storm for them. You know, they bear some responsibility as well. I think so. We're blaming the councils, but you know, if if you're going to stand the candidate, at least do it seriously. You know, put in a major figure and and create the kind of mm. contest that it should be. But but in fact, it's it's like it's a kind of surrogacy. You know. It's it's just as well that surrogacy isn't illegal in Ireland because we have a kind of surrogate Sinn Féin candidate, we have we have a surrogate pro life candidate, and we have three surrogate Trumps who are mm. you know pretty pretty weak. Well, let's leave it there. It'll all, all be over very soon. Uh, um, I'm glad to say, Vincent, um, myself and Declan, our producer, were talking before we started recording, and our, our most uh, popular subjects on our podcasts uh, at the moment are, I think, Brexit is one. Presidential has been it's hard to tell, but we, we think is doing okay. Um, but housing is the other. Um, and you've obviously written a fair bit about it over the, over the last while, and it's the primary political issue. I think that's broadly expected. Mm-hmm. Except you, you had a very interesting piece in last Saturday when you were talking about the tradition of building social housing in Ireland and how that had stripped or drained away and been replaced by a, a new set of theories about the provision of, 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 of social and affording housing in Ireland in the 1990s, which you said was a bad thing. Yeah, you know, the, the the thing that's stopping the building of social housing is not the unavailability of land, it's not the unavailability of money. The European Investment Bank, for, for example, has defined social housing as a, a, a legitimate uh, piece of infrastructure. You know, you can you can you can borrow very cheaply to build social housing. The thing that's stopping it is this 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 um theology, and it is a theology which says that um we can never ever again build social housing estates, you know, uh, because they're they're too one class, mm-hmm. you know. Um this can create ghettos. And this never That's applies, by the way, to middle-class ghettos. So, yeah. so, so nobody ever says, you know, the land that RCE sold, uh, you know, out in, out, in, out in Donnybrook, you know, must, must be, you know, half social housing to make it, make it for a decent social mix, you know. Mm-hmm. It's only in relation to uh, housing need that this really arises. And it's, it's a classic example of the perfect being the enemy of the good. Of course, in a perfect world. All, you know, all, we would all be mixed in together and you'd have lots of social mixing and you'd have the very wealthy living next door to, to social tenants. It's not going to happen. It's never happened. You know, but what happened when uh, Bertie Hearn tried to do this with this kind of part five thing is they, they allowed the builders basically to buy their way out of it so they could they could maybe build a couple part, of tokens. Part five was the requirement that, yeah, that, that they had to build the, the, the 10%. Yeah. And, you know, they were allowed to buy out of it and say, well, well, we'll provide you with some houses over there. And what's happened then is, is, is two things. One, of course, is the huge buildup of, of, of housing need. And the second is the state is spending a fortune on, instead of housing people in, in social housing and therefore having an asset, uh, it's, it's paying money to private landlords you know, on, on a vast scale. I mean, we're heading towards a billion a year now. Subsidy to private landlords. The, the level of HAP payments in the CNAG's report. I, mean, I, I, I dug out the initial figure, you know, when, when this came in. It was seven, seven million a year we were spending on it, you know, when we were building social housing. So the state has spent billions and billions, really, you know, over, over the last 20 years for nothing. I mean, it gets, it gets no asset out of this. And it's not satisfactory for the people who are often, you know, being subsidized. So I think. Uh, you know, Leo Varadkar was being asked about this, and he 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 almost kind of <laughs> said yeah, there was a, there the was a half a sentence, wasn't there? there yeah, was, there where was he said, you know, "Oh, you people, you all, you want to divide everybody up into those who pay for everything and qualify for nothing, and then those people who, but you know, he's basically saying social housing is just for the losers, and we don't want that." The 
the problem is, you know, why is social housing just for the losers? Social housing was for working people. You know, I, I mean, I grew up in social housing. Huge numbers of people grew up in social housing. It occurred to me, if you just think about the numbers, we've built about 300,000 social homes in Ireland, the history of the state. Very conservatively, if you said 10 people grew up in each house, that's probably much more of the generations, but very conservative. That's 3 million people. You know, have we produced three million losers? You know, are we, is, is, you know, is there some taint on all, all of these people? The labourers' cottages, you know, that were built in every, every village and town in Ireland, the, the, the social housing estates. This was, even if you look at the legislation, the names of the legislation that were built, they were, you know, the Labourers' Act, the, the, the working, um, the Housing for the Working Classes Acts, you know, they were for working people. Um, and they were part of the economy. They were seen as, you know, you have to house your workers. Um, what's wrong with housing your workers? You know, we're, we're, one of the things that happened and one of the things that led to this change in ideology in the 1990s that uh, that a, a number of areas, urban areas in, in Limerick and in Dublin yeah. became what were called sink estates, that there was a deliberate policy of choosing all the people who had the worst social yeah. problems uh, and putting them all together in a Ballymun yeah. or wherever yeah. it might be. Yeah. And that therefore that's one of the things that either led to or justified, depending on how you characterise it, this kind of change of change of policy. Absolutely. Plus the state just getting out of building houses. Absolutely. I mean, if you talk to people in, in uh, Tala or Clondalkin in, in, in the early 1990s, I mean, they were themselves referring to the places they lived as reservations, you know. They knew, they knew that they were, you know, they were being got out of the way, out of sight, put into, you know, very concentrated areas of social deprivation with very poor services, with with really no planning, with really no thought about how how people should 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 live there. Um, and that's just that's terrible social policy and really appalling planning. And it, it, a lot of it was driven by a very simple thing, which was that you you when you stop building the social houses, of course, they become scarcer. And therefore, you you have criteria. And the criteria goes to the people in, in most need. So therefore, the most deprived people are going to be bumped up the list. And therefore, you're going to end up, even without really necessarily thinking about it, you're going to end up with concentrating people in, in these areas. They then brought in this ludicrous policy that uh, they, they would subsidize people if you, if, you, if you left a social house, you were subsidized to, to buy your own house. So even the people within those areas who had resources, you know, were, were, were incentivized to move out. So, of course, we did create ghettos. But there is absolutely no reason why public housing equals ghettos. I mean, it doesn't in, in, in Holland, it doesn't in Denmark, it doesn't in Germany. I mean, you know, a lot of countries build 25, 30% of their housing is, is public and voluntary housing of one kind or another. It's perfectly doable with decent planning. The weird thing in Ireland at the moment is we have maybe for the first time in our history, we have some of the best architects in the world working here, you know, and, you know, winning massive international contracts, you know, held to be brilliant kind of conceptual planners and everything else. Why not unleash that kind of brilliance on social housing? Why not say that social housing should be for a very wide group of people? You know, why not say that social housing is, is a reasonable step? You know, if you want to think about the latter, and I hate that kind of concept, but a lot of people, you know, would, 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 very, very happily rent a house in a public estate and they might then, you know, as they get a little bit more established and wealthier, want to move on and buy their own house. But, you know, it's it's only because we've we've created the ghettos and then we say, well, actually social housing is, is, is ghettos and we mustn't do it. It's a kind of circular process, which is... And I just wonder, I mean, how much, much of this type of stuff, you, I mean, you use the word snobbery in the piece. Yeah. So how much of it is about uh, something which Irish people often claim doesn't exist, but clearly does exist, which, which is snobbery, which is allied with ideology. And how much of it is, is uh, related to 
who benefits from this? If there are these massive HAP payments, to come back to the presidential election, one of the few striking things I've noticed is the come to the knowledge that uh, Michael T. Higgins is a landlord uh, and he owns uh, he owns three properties as well as living in a in in a, in a council house of sorts in the in in the Phoenix Park, you know. Um, and how many of our not just our political representatives but people in general are benefiting from payments of one sort or another? Do we know how many? Do, do we know how many members of the Eurocrats are? No, it's a majority of members of the Eurocrats. Not off the top of my head, but there's a, there's a large number of members of the Eurocrats who are landlords. I'm not uh, criticising them for it, but it certainly would give them a certain perspective. It on seems to be. Like, it seems, but like the funny thing is, um, is it a kind of a patrician approach? Nearly that the the government thinks it knows the best way of doing this, and it's going to tell people who are in housing need how it believes their lives should be structured, the communities could be structured because this mixed tenure idea, which is the opposite of what Vincent is talking about, is a key element of that Rebuilding Ireland programme they're still working off. It was a huge fanfare of it. I remember when it was launched in two two, three years ago and it was this this is the big idea we have, mixed tenure and, you know, the proportion of I can't remember the exact split, but it was this was the, the way the policy route they were going. So they show no signs of changing direction on it. And I noticed that um, they've structured housing development in such a way now that it doesn't probably allow for direct building by the state on state lands. Yeah. So if you look at this new land development agency, uh, Kitty had a piece in the paper this morning about um, how that's going to work. And I think that the way it's set up is there would be 30% of homes built on state land would be affordable, yet to define what actually affordable is. 10%, which is the 10% part five, would be social and then it would be an ambition to get to another 10% of social. But the reason it's so restricted is because they wanted to raise private finance off the state balance sheet to build homes. And that's the way it's structured. And there's no real scope to do what Vinton says, which is, you know, 100% of state land. Are they also used the for, so, for social housing? for doing that is that you, you get better value for money if you run a true private company, that, that it's very expensive for the state directly to build. There's absolutely it's no evidence of this, though. You know, it's, no, but I'm just wondering. No, you're, exactly, no, you're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. But, you know, the, 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 the single outstanding thing about the Irish housing market and Irish housing supply that makes it different from almost everywhere else is the price of land is massively inflated. And you talk about who benefits. Well, land owners, we've got huge land banks, private land banks, which are which are hoarded. So they very successfully driven up the underlying price of land. This is a problem that goes way back to the Kenny Report in 1974. It's never been tackled. So typically, you know, if you're in the States, for example, the price of the land is about 10% of the price of the house. You know, here it could be 50% of the price of the house. The actual building costs of a house in Ireland on average is about 160,000, you know. And yet, you know, you're charging 350, 360 easily for just a very ordinary Although house. social housing, very often because it's built to a higher standard and it's built to, mm. built to last longer, is actually does a, has, has a higher building cost. Absolutely. And know? that's fine if you're, if, you're, if you're earning a... Um, rental back on it, for example. But also it's fine if you if you already own the land, you know, if you if you if you if you take the land out of the cost. So it's I mean Fake is absolutely right and, and I think you know gave a great description of where government policy is, is, is going. But who benefits, I think, the question that you asked. Well uh, of course pri- private landlords benefit. Uh, private developers benefit enormously, not just from being able to take a profit from the provision of social housing, but actually more importantly, if you don't have 20 to 30% of social housing in a housing market, it massively inflates the price of private housing because you increase the demand. You, you, you create a, a situation in which you have unmeasurable demand, right? So there, is, there hasn't been a time in the history of the state when about 30% of people cannot afford the private market. Private market does not provide housing for very large numbers of people. So you're creating this situation in which you will you will always have demand where which supply cannot match. 
And that results in in the inflation of house prices. Why we have some of the most expensive house prices in the world, and why we're, we were right back there. You know, why we're back again into paying ludicrous amounts of money for housing, which has a disastrous effect on every other aspect of Irish life. It makes it extremely unpleasant for people, puts them under enormous stress. It uh, creates this uh, environmental catastrophe whereby we're we're building, you know. Forcing people to live sixty miles away from where they work, you know, and making us one of the most motor-dependent societies in the world, uh, and it also, of course, creates cost in in the economy. You know, so why are wages high? Why is you know, it 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 it, it has knock-on effects all the way through society, simply because we won't do the obvious thing, which we were perfectly capable of doing when we were a much poorer society, which is to say, okay, twenty. Five percent or thirty percent of the houses being built every year should be public housing. And by the way, when I say public housing, I don't necessarily mean local authorities. The voluntary organisations, for example, have a fantastic record of of being able mm-hmm. to deliver as well. So it's not really a question of like who owns the stuff. It's about the idea of the public in the broadest sense that there is a definition of housing which starts with the fact that it is a social human need, not a commodity primarily. And if you start meeting the human need, then actually you you change the way in which the commodity market works and you regulate it better just simply by having that kind of floor under it. We shall, we shall leave it there. When is the Brexit book out, Fenton? Uh, so the Brexit book, which is going to be called Heroic Failure, Brexit and the Politics of Pain, is out. <laughs> There's one for your Christmas stocking. Uh, as you can tell, I'm going for the Fifty Shades Grey market. Uh, so I'm hoping I'll, this time next year I won't be, you know, we'll all be billionaires. Um, it's out on November 15th, I think. I've, I've just... Uh, Finished it on November uh, on October first. That's a very fast turnaround, but it's really about kind of just trying to answer the question that oddly enough nobody in England has really tried to answer, which is how does a developed, sophisticated, prosperous democracy have a nervous breakdown? We might get you back in to have a chat about that when it comes out. Thanks very much for coming in. Thanks also to Fiac. And that is it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, our engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes, whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. You can find us on the Irish Times website at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. If you want to get in touch, you can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can always find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks very much for listening. 